In today's podcast, we talk about measuring success within marketing with growth marketeer CJ Terrell. We go into detail discussing the differences between growth hacking and growth marketing and the importance of two-way omni-channel messaging. CJ, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, David. Very happy to be here. Great. Uh, so, CJ, uh, that you know, with a brief intro, let's start with you know your personal journey as a growth marketer. Uh, what brought you uh, into this uh, space? Uh, what motivates you? You know, what's uh, where, where's your drive coming from to enter into the space? It's a great question. You know, put it simply, um, I like to say that I connect makers with markets. So those who make things essentially when they're looking for customers, I'm the one that can help them connect with markets. Now, but really why I got into the space, honestly, it was many years ago uh, where I, it was through a series of events where I honestly just kind of felt disconnected. Those people are in my social circles I was trying to connect with. And I just felt like I wasn't really truly being heard in some respects, even though I was always very active. I've done a lot of sports in my life, a lot of music. I've had a lot of success pretty much every organization I've been involved with. But just something about it, I, there's a creativity aspect that wasn't being expressed. The door-to-door sales I was doing when I was younger, which was really fun, but just wasn't enough. And I just felt like there's something bigger inside of me. So I started exploring those areas about uh, 10 years ago. In terms, and What I mean by areas in terms of like social media or content writing or things like that, more on the creative side. And it really sparked an interest in me. And so over time, it's not that I called myself a growth marketer um, around that time. It was all these different areas that I got involved with what, from social media to content and you name it within the realms of marketing. And then I later learned it was only a few years ago that there's actually a term for this, um, not growth hacking, but growth marketing, which is managing the entire uh, essentially customer life cycle um, uh, from pre-sales to post-sales. Fascinated me, dug more into it. And kind of the rest is history with the types of campaigns that I managed and the products that I brought to market. You know, it's interesting you point out the nuance between growth marketing and growth hacking, right? In your, you know, what is that nuance? What do what does marketers need to understand the distinction between the two? Sure. And I, I admittedly have seen many definitions on the internet for both, but at least the way I personally define it. Growth so both have their merits, both have their applications. But growth hacking typically is much more focused on nuanced tactical improvements, meaning A B tests, split testing, quick hacks, so to say, different colors, different words, etc., to increase engagement. It's always focusing on the North Star, always on growth, which is great. You always want to be focusing on growth, but it's more iterative, um, very fast-paced. Whereas with growth marketing, it's much more about how you manage the entire customer lifecycle or buyer's journey. There's different words for it, but essentially the lifecycle for both pre-sales activity as well as post-sales activity. And what that involves is understanding the metrics that is involved with that lifecycle, how to form the funnel for pre-sales and post-sales and how to align design, marketing, sales, and customer care. And then create essentially a virtuous circle between them, product, and making sure everyone can kind of work in harmony along those uh, funnels. Sounds like uh, growth marketing takes a more holistic view and, uh, you know, KPIs, metrics, and things like that are very key to, uh, I mean, not saying it's not important to growth hacking, but it's more kind of right from different stages of the sales process, right? 
Yeah, I would say growth hacking, short of it is growth hacking is tactical and takes place throughout growth marketing's phases, you know, visitors, leads, prospects, et cetera. And then strategic is more for the growth marketing itself. Great. Uh, well, walk us through, you know, um, your steps that you usually take when you engage, um, you know, or what would you advise for a company that wants to implement growth marketing into their process? So um, if you could clarify a bit more, it depends on the type of company. You're talking about more like early stage and general. Uh, what do you mean exactly? Um, you know, you can pick one, like maybe we, let's start with the early stage and then perhaps something, a strategy for more kind of a mid-sized company that, you know, some a, a, you know group of marketers can undertake or, you know, marketing leadership can undertake. Sure. So if I was to tackle it first, um, explaining if you're a business that's, starting to think about growth marketing and you're trying to take something to market, would that be a reasonable place to kind of delve into? That sounds, yeah, that sounds like a great place to start. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Great. So I tend to split it up into um, a series of stages. Um, it, and I classify it depends on what you're offering first. I usually just simply call it a offering. Sometimes people call it a product, but usually it means it's more tangible Then you have services, platforms, Etc. The reason why I do that is because there's usually different personas involved and there's different motives, um, different values at stake, different principles, how they want to interact with it. So those things do matter. Um, but what that all means is whatever you offer, um, there's just a matter of really who you're offering it to. And of course, there's more depth to each of these, but it just simplifies it to begin with. So what you offer, who you offer it to, where are they, which channels, essentially. And then fourth is what engages them. I know those are high level, um, but we can go deeper than that. Um, it's just something somewhere to start. When it comes to it, I always start <clears throat> with the pre-sales activities. This is just understanding who are your viewers, where are they going to be? It's going to be website, landing pages, et cetera. Um, then next is just thinking about how do you, um, of those who become leads, express interest in something that you offer? How do you qualify that? How do you classify that? Like what is a lead? What is not a lead? And then, Usually a marketing qualified lead is something that marketing deals with and they pass it off to sales. Sales then has what's called hopefully a sales qualified lead. If it's a short term sort of sale, it's probably going to be based on a common framework called BANT, which stands for budget, authority, need, and timeline. I usually start with the need, then go to the authority, then the budget, then the timeline. And if it's a longer uh, form sale, like an enterprise sale, which may be between three months to two years, give or take, uh, there's another framework which is quite helpful called MEDIC, M-E-D-D-I-C-C. Um, essentially, that allows you to qualify them and have like mutual action plans and get a really solid sense of who they are. These are useful to understand then how to basically convert them into uh, one of two types, either being users, as I qualify users as those who are engaging with the service, but they're not paying for it. For example, like social media, um, whereas you have users on there, but then you have advertisers, which are your customers. And it helps from a balance sheet standpoint, just to classify what's a user and then also what's a customer, essentially those who are paying you. Um, and then after they have been converted, whatever that conversion is to be a user or a customer, then it's a matter of post-sales or post-engagements, right? Of becoming that engaged entity. That usually then goes into the form of how do you then, if you have the opportunity to upsell them or resell them or cross-sell them, the different ways of making money, uh, then those start to get employed. And then as they find more, uh, quote-unquote, 
aha moments. They're fascinated with your product. They finally get that breakthrough that they're looking for, in other words, or they, uh, you know, are just really excited to share it. Then they kind of move into the mode of mindset, which is the advocates, those who just love to share what you're doing. And if they hopefully can find ways to do that, then um, you want to give them all the power to do so. So you you just talked a little bit about the customer journey mapping, right? Right from yeah. somebody kind of considering you for a service or even kind of right from the beginning brand awareness all the way to loyalty and advocacy, you know, where they become advocates of your brand, right? Um, Correct. How do you see marketing and sales working hand in hand? You know, what are the each of its roles, um, you know, and how do they how do they work cohesively together? So talk a little bit about that. Sure. So the way I define it in three words, actually, for each is number one for marketing. Marketing grows pipelines. Now, there's different words you can use to these, but generally speaking, they create awareness. They get interest. So they generate demand and they generate leads. Hopefully, those are then qualified for sales. Um, sales, essentially, in three words, sales sustains operations through the revenue that they generate, right? So how they work together is vital. And I'd also like to clarify that it depends on the type of business you're working on. Or sorry, working. well, it depends if you're working on it, if you're the founder or leader, or working within as one of the, the team members. So if you're B2B, Typically, you will skew towards employing more sales um, investments, so more salespeople, more sales tools, et cetera, because they're typically going to be longer life cycles. And if it's more consumer-focused, for example, like consumer technology or something along those lines, then you will tend to be more marketing-focused. And it's kind of like a, a, a metaphorical seesaw, you could say. So you might be leaning more towards marketing if it's B2C or more towards uh, sales if it's B2B. The reasons for that just really largely come down to the life cycle um, stage because when people are uncertain if they want to buy something and they have enough uh, purchase power, they spend enough essentially to make it worthwhile for you to employ people to work with them and demo with them and assuage them and get them to that next stage of becoming that customer or a high profile user, for example, when they're not paying but it's leveraged to get money from other, uh, and other entities. And that would make sense. But how they work together is essentially along those lines is they have to be able to qualify what makes sense for each team in terms of if there's going to be metrics that marketing is going to follow, if they're going to be generating leads, in other words, what is a lead? What is not a lead? Um, is it a certain geography? Is it a certain type of demographic? Is it all of the above? Is it a certain value graphic? It's essentially what types of values they um, place emphasis on. And tangibly speaking, it could be what terms, search terms they search for most often on Google, or it could be what groups are they most often part of on social media, things like that. And so how do you find this, categorize it, clarify it, and then make it in a way where they can easily pass it off to sales, whether that be in a shared uh, CRM. It could also be in an omni-channel communications approach. Uh, it's actually similar to what uh, my startup Chatfully does. So we unify different channels and put them into one so everyone's communicating seamlessly across any channel at scale. It could also be in forms of just simply an email pass-off. It depends primarily on the scope. So meaning the scale of how many people they're in touch with, how efficiently you want to do that. 
and the types of tools that your company can reasonably afford. Some are more expensive, some are not really practical, uh, but there are others that make much more sense from a mass market communication standpoint. It simply depends on what your company needs. It's awesome. So uh, I do want to get into Chatfully before we get dive into that. I'd love to hear your views on strategically differentiating your efforts between marketing and selling services versus products. Um, tell, talk to us a little bit about that because there are some of our listeners, they service customers and some of them have products. Um, so how, how would you approach each? It's a, actually a great question because I don't think it's talked about enough online, but a, if we were to get the semantics correct, so a product typically is something that is tangible. Service is something that is typically intangible. So because of that, uh, when you are selling something in general, from what I've learned over the years, from initially selling door to door, then selling more you know, in a corporate sense, and then doing mass market campaigns online, it usually all comes back to the same basics. You have to first like someone or something. Typically, you buy into the people of that company, but if it's more of a faceless company, you're buying into the spirit of the product, so to say. You have to first like it. Um, then you have to more so believe in it or believe that it works. And then you have to more so trust it. It becomes an extension of you. So when you're talking about a product versus a service, there's even though those same uh, three stages, so to say, the selling process typically are still employed, products are obviously much more easy to be believed in typically. Um, it could be anything that you're selling, but as a random example, it could be, let's say you're selling a premium water bottle for a gym, right? You can typically say, if it has a great design, yeah, I like it, right? You can believe that it works because it doesn't leak. And you can probably trust it because you know it can always be by your side when you're moving from machine to machine, right? So uh, it's, it's not too hard to sell those aspects. The uh, differentiator is the personality at that point because when you tend to become more commoditized within an industry, you tend, it's, not, it's almost like lily pads, right? You don't necessarily spread out more throughout the pond unless you're able to survive on thin margin. But if you are able to then become a specialist with that core, so for example, in the water bottle scenario, you would only market to gyms or maybe only specialty gyms because you capture a certain, engage a certain type of customer persona that simply does not engage with it in other senses for athletics. For services, and we can go back to more examples if you'd like to, um, that are maybe better fit for your audience, but that'd be a tangible example. Right. Um, and then for services, it's much more about believing in who you are as a person and heavy emphasis on that. So I've also done consulting for a number of years too, because I like to sink my teeth into complex projects and really kind of prove a lot of these ideas out of my mind on paper. I think that's why a lot of people go into consulting for the learning opportunities, et cetera. And from my own experience, having provided services and having sold them and having, you know, learned the ups and downs of kind of the trade and, you know, you being, of course, right. I think, you know, in technology as well, right. Um, right. You learn how to provide a service better and better over time because you learn who's best fit, who's maybe not as good of a fit. And we all, all go through this. It's all a learning process. So, but it really comes down to how we sell ourselves, right. So that's the idea. It's how you sell yourself, how you present yourself. It's not really as much about what you wear. It depends on the industry that you're in. If you're an entertainment artist, probably it's more about what you wear. Um, but it, it, a lot of it comes down to um, which types of customers you're serving. What do they pay for? 
What Got is it. your value? Is it the intellect? Is it other aspects? So there's a, there's on. a little bit of a personal branding that you know folks need to pay attention to uh, in the case of services. Yeah, and in terms of branding, just you know, make it. Um, I, I like to say cogent. Uh, cogent is one of my favorite word. It basically means make it clear, make it logical, and make it convincing. And if you can do that, um, you're, I think, in a really good spot. That's great. Well, let's jump into Chatfully. Let's uh, talk about that. Um, omni-channel is a buzzword in the industry. Let's break that down for our listeners first and then uh, jump into Chatfully, what, how, how it plays in that uh, area. Sure thing. So omni-channel, uh, yeah, in some circles, some spheres, it is a buzzword. We... Um, I think it helps to first classify what is omnichannel. There's three primary categories. There's single channel, which is one line of communication. Let's say you only use email to communicate with your audience. Uh, another one would be multi-channel. Uh, and that the difference between multi-channel and cross-channel is this. Multi-channel is when you are on multiple channels, but they are not cross-communicating with each other. In other words, the information, the data, the people, they're siloed. They still technically work fine, but the, the context is lost. And omni-channel, you're still on those multiple channels, but not only are you vertically communicating, for example, across Facebook and Twitter and email, et cetera, but now you, that all that data, you have a central repository of that information and you understand what's going on, not only across the channels, but more importantly, what's happening between each of the people you're communicating with and your team also has the clarity of mind of what to communicate with them on. That's awesome. So um, where does Chatfully fit in? So Chatfully fits a gap in the mindset, I believe, with what um, we originally saw. And, uh, you know, we, we, we like to say mindshare before market share, because when you get mindshare, you also get market share. And the gap is really uh, depends on the persona you're talking about. But for marketing, uh, for people in my sort of role, we had this issue of the lack of context. Um, when you have low engagement on advertising, it's about 2% engagement on average for an advertisement. 98% failure rate is another way to look at it, which is true. right? If you have fantastic engagement, it's 90% failure rate. right? On average, you're probably going to get 10 and you're doing very well. Ask most advertisers online. Um, content as well. Um, but what we're seeing is that there's a shift. There's a massive shift going on in terms of how businesses communicate with consumers. And it's much more conversational. So what we've seen this in retail um, more and more, and we've seen it in some other sectors. But really what's happening, and we've done the, um, the research on this too, most businesses in America and globally as well, I'd say probably close to 90% of them do not have omnichannel technology, which is actually readily available across their entire team on an as-need basis to communicate with consumers, most importantly, as they scale. Usually it's fragmented in two primary aspects. It's either they talk with them on all these different channels when they're startups or you know, medium-sized corps, and they can make do with this multi-channel approach, but they lose the context. And then for the big companies, usually they're going to be paying 30,000, 100,000, or much, much more to create their own custom omni-channel solutions. But in between, there's not really much, or there hasn't historically been much. Now, of course, in any software as a service space, there's always going to be those who we call uh, market alternatives. We don't call them competitors because if you are commoditized, then yes, it makes sense that you have a competitor. You're basically competing on feature by feature, penny by penny. Um, but this is a really interesting space because it depends on who you serve. 
and who you serve has different requests and different requests mean different capabilities and subsets of different features within those capabilities. So all in all, that's the type of gaps we fill. It's providing more context, helping uh, customers be heard and allowing these agents to also be heard because now you can have higher engagement and maintain that while scaling your business. Got it. And the chat fully sounds like it's cross-platform or cross-channel, I should say. Um, and Correct. that would mean across social media platforms, text, voice, all of those yes. channels. Yeah, so we do instant messaging and we enable that at scale. So that we started off with text, two-way texting, uh, by the way, which I should uh, clarify. Most people probably understand the difference between one-way to two-way texting, but it's, um, it's dramatic. It's a dramatic shift. Basically, one-way texting is like uh, TV broadcasting. You don't expect people to respond to you, and you basically just put a message out there, and hopefully they get it. Whether they like it or not, doesn't really matter because you've already sent the message. Are they blocking? Two-way messaging flips up. What's up? Are they block you <laughs> if Are it's a broadcast? You? Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Two-way messaging is a really interesting beast because what it – uh, forces in a good way is for companies that are interested in having actual conversations with their audiences. Not every business makes sense to have this, but for those who are incentivized like banks and gyms and et cetera, it's actually transformative for their entire business because all of a sudden you can actually talk with people and do that at scale instead of picking up a phone call and making, let's say a three, five, 10 minute phone call, let's say on an, an average five minutes, make a hundred of those calls a day, maybe, I used to work in recruiting years back too. So I got a sense of what it's like to actually do these calls at scale. Um, it's a hustle. It's a hustle. And it takes a lot of time. And you get a lot of people who are not answering. I think, frankly, it's because it goes back to not being heard. People on the receiving end know that you know maybe it's a commoditized industry or whatever it may be, but it's not relevant for them at that time. And for us, it's annoying too because we just simply want to connect. And so how do you how do you reduce that schism, so to say, how do you have both parties engage more often? Two-way texting is a great way to do that. And social media messaging, we, you know, we connect with Facebook, Twitter, and we're connecting more um, as the company evolves as well. We have more channels in the works. So it's pretty exciting. And all this just brings it into context so people can have conversations wherever, whenever, with whoever right. to get the one thing most involved is what they want to engage with. And another thing to add to this, and I'm curious how Chatfully addresses this part, is the continuation of the conversation, right? You start with a, a text, and then perhaps you are logged into Facebook. You don't want to re-explain the whole challenge or the issue to your customer service. You know, you yeah, want to, no. if you did get transferred to another chat agent, um, you know, you want to continue that conversation seamlessly. I'm curious how Chatfully addresses that. Yes, uh, and that's a great point, too. So we address this almost in a form of stitching the conversation, so to say. And it's surprisingly, it's a very difficult uh, problem to solve uh, for a number of reasons. But how we essentially do this is we allow you to manage these contacts, um, whether, whatever their uh, identifications may be, name, address, et cetera. You couldn't get address from a Facebook message, for example, because it doesn't come with that information. But if we're texting, right, you can more easily find that um, because of public records. So we allow you to do this by basically linking these different types of um, conversations up as you see fit. 
We have a customizable interface for their profiles. So it makes it easy to understand who is who and who you want to connect with and prioritization and putting certain types of fields that you want to see with them associated with the records. Basically what it means is you know who they are, they know who you are. And if you want to chat with them, they want to chat with you likely because you know what they're interested in and you know when to connect with them. It's a personalized experience, right? Uh, that leads to exactly. better customer experience. Um, exactly. That's our only goal, personalization. Right. Um, where do you see Chatfully being deployed uh, in most cases? So in most cases, it would be B2C type companies, those who have high volume communication. So their communication is either constant at high volume or they're just about to ramp up communication. Actually, I think me doing this on the video might be the other way. What I mean is positive. Right. <laughs> I mean, come or and maybe this is better. There we go. That <laughs> are you viewing this video? Want to Basically, show that hockey bro. stick? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Up. <laughs> and uh, on top of that, <laughs> it's also high uh, high frequency communication. So basically, it's really for those types of companies that actually want to talk, who actually want to talk, chat with their audience. If they don't want to do that, they're welcome to sign up. But those who would find the most value from it is those who actually want to have two-way conversations. And this would make the most sense for service-type businesses um, who are already pretty uh, sizable. Um, or because that's what essentially that's what they're paid for. That's what they gain more traction on from those. Or other types of B2C companies which have high-volume, high-touch communication. That's great. Uh, now, with the advent of video, right? Video is becoming an integral part of communications. Um, I've seen emails with personalized video messages, and uh, you know, people are not even typing any messages anymore. T talk to us about that. How do you see that sure. two-way? Yeah. So, with the two-way conversations, I, you know, what we so personal hobby of mine is I actually study. Um, human history and uh, geologic timeline of history of earth pretty, pretty intensely. I, I love the topics. So my reason for bringing that up is uh, literally we have evolved and there's science that backs us up all over the place. We've evolved to be social beings. We've evolved to want, we yearn to communicate. And this is something that's baked into our brains, baked into our bodies. And so you know, over the next 20 years, hundred years, even a thousand I don't anticipate that letting up because this is something that we've evolved into for literally tens of millions of years before we were even humans um, is what we evolved from. So I share this because how it's evolving today, there's certain things that which come across as hype. Uh, for example, certain terms or whatnot for credit or not, like you mentioned, omnichannel is a kind of a buzz term earlier, but at the same time, omnichannel really is here to stay because it's simply what it really comes down to is you have context and you know what to send and when to send it. That's the core idea. Whether the, the name itself, Omnichannel, sounds a little bit buzzy, that's a different matter. But what it does, that's the inherent value. And that, that kind of thing is here to stay for a while. So we address that um, with instant uh, messaging because people just simply love to talk. When people don't want to pick up the phone as much anymore, they simply usually go to talking the next form, which is typing. Or it could be, you know, 20 years out, it could be brain-computer interfacing, which is very likely. MIT and some other leading institutions have already been working on this. Whatever it is, it's a form of it has to go from the mind or from the fingers or from the mouth to text um, or maybe voice calls in the future, but somehow it has to get communicated. That interface to communicate with it 
is where Chatfleet can be positioned directly in between those two parties. That's awesome. So we talked a little bit about the B2C uh, space that Chatfully plays in. Um, can you tell us a few use cases or business cases for Chatfully? Um, perhaps speak a little bit about your customers um, that you've kind of, that have loved using Chatfully. Uh, talk, talk to our listeners about that. Sure thing. So one, one of the markets, although we don't have as many customers in this market yet, um, we have a number of verticals um, that we're expanding into. Uh, one is actually research firms, uh, for example. So if you want to send, if you have a client um, for your research firm that wants to send out mass texts, for example, and you want to get feedback, you can do that instantly. Whether that mean getting qualitative feedback, people responding to it, sending out, you know, responding to surveys, et cetera. I think most of us on the receiving end of surveys that are sent through email nowadays, some of us may open it. Many more do not, as of you know, compared to ten years ago. So the new form of to do that could be through texting, sending out those surveys for feedback. It could also be through. Um, well, I was going to say gems. Gems are at, at the current moment when we're video, you know, taping this are currently closed due to the uh, pandemic. That's but, right. You know, people will always want to exercise, and as they reopen, right, um, it would be forms of simply tech personal trainers texting with their user, uh, with their not sorry, not users, their customers, um, their trainees and giving them personal health tips, possibly sending over images of nutrition guides, things like this that just let, you know, for example, uh, Joe and Sally or however, you know, whatever the names are, right. Communicate with each other, make it almost feel like they're friends, so to say, right. Personalized communication could also be for auto dealerships. You'd have a brand new, let's say, um, Lamborghini in the shop. If you're, uh, you know, tempted to get one of those, or if you're, you know, maybe in the uh, market for like an Audi or, you know, a Toyota or whatever it may be. You can engage with your customers, do it at scale, allow them to keep engaged. If you have an event coming up, you can text for that to get them involved. If they're interested, they could, you know, have if they have questions about it, where, when, how. It basically keeps the conversation going beyond the website is the core idea. And there's a couple dozen other uh, market verticals we could potentially see going into over time, depending on the validity in the market, um, you know, market situation. You know, you talk, it's funny you talk about the automotive industry, I literally texted with this car salesperson, almost negotiated the price to through text, and I just mm-hmm. had to go in there, test drive the car, and sign the paperwork. So everything was done through chat. So that's that was pretty awesome. Uh, I was Prime example. That. Yeah. yeah. Um, Good. Go ahead. You know, I was, I was going to say uh, another example would be uh, with one of our customers right now. They are uh, in the transportation industry, actually. Uh, so it's kind of cool that you had that experience. And they are more in the shipping uh, side for the transportation industry, but um, really great team. And uh, for example, they use it to communicate uh, with their leads. So for those who have expressed interest, right? Um, those who want fast communication, it really helps to get in touch with them really quickly and have that conversation. And if they're interested, great. If they're not, they're not. But you find out that answer a lot faster. And you can distribute that across your team to hopefully scale communications. End of the day, like I mentioned before, it's really just about personalization and hopefully helping people where they actually need help. You know, uh, with this type of communication, one challenge I could see is um, tracking, right? Traceability of this communication. Sometimes it's in personal devices. It's, you know, in your personal Facebook history. And a lot of times if you're, if a company like a business wants to see how that communication is working or not working for them, what would you, where, 
where would they want to track that? You know, what are some traceability and audit parameters uh, that they could uh, tap into? It's actually a really good point. Um, and I'm glad you reminded me of this one because when you get into larger customers and you have uh, IT will typically be involved, but especially when you get into larger companies, it might be an official like IT department rather than, you know, um, an individual taking over the case. One of their largest concerns, among others, right? IT departments have a lot of concerns around data for very good reason. Um, but it's really keeping the data in-house when, for example, an employee leaves for whatever reason, they furloughed, laid off, you know, fired, et cetera. A lot of times salespeople, um, for you know, no, no bad reason, um, no malintent, but they have their personal texts, uh, they have business texts on their personal phone or they have other types of um, business communication on their own personal communication channels. Chatfully effectively eliminates that issue entirely. And uh, IT departments, we believe, um, do enjoy this because they don't have to worry about this information getting in the wrong hands or it being even worse uh, used against them. These are not cases that happen often, but when they do, you certainly do not want them happening um, because it can shift the business's bottom line and reputation very quickly in a downward trend. And by communicating on a business uh, a phone number that we can text enable through their existing phone number, that's powerful because not only can you now do it at scale, of course, but it's not on the personal phone anymore. And when it's on their, um, their corporate uh, social media channels, for example, or their, pers- you know, their corporate web chat, which we also offer and integrate as well. Uh, making it truly, you know, messaging on a channel that allows it the control to remain in the company's favor rather than the individual. But on this other side, allowing that uh, individual, say it's a practitioner, frontline you know, specialist, or a manager or VP, to still have the flexibility to have the communication that they need at any level, whichever channel they need it, with their customers. So it re- allows flexibility on both sides while hedging the risk in the favor of the company so that they can maintain um, their brand and sustainability. CJ, we're gonna take a short break. Um, We'll be right back after uh, this brief message. Hello, I'm here to tell you about ModeStack, a digital product agency that makes this podcast possible. Just because you watch the Travel Channel doesn't mean you are well-traveled. In the same way, just because you have a mobile app doesn't mean you are digitally transformed. ModeStack helps create a digital transformation strategy that unlocks potential for growth and uncovers new opportunities. ModeStack does this with a very unique approach called Jumpstart, Drive, and Top Gear. Would you like to learn more? Check out themodestack.com. And that is themodestack.com. And now, back to the show. We are back to CJ Terrell. Um, CJ, um, tell us a little, this is the part where we get into a little bit of a personal experience style thing, uh, usually after the break. We'd love to hear your uh, personal journey into technology, marketing. You know, tell us, tell us about that. Sure thing, David. So I use technology to make every day more seamless and enjoyable. Uh, this includes automating everything from like my home entertainment and security system. I find it like almost enchanting and um, it, it's just really fun playing with these gadgets. And so uh, what's been useful though is being able to connect with objects that were previously inanimate. I, sounds, I know that sounds super nerdy to say, you know, connecting with inanimate objects, but 
it's just really fun flipping on the TV, uh, casting stuff from my computer, things that we've kind of taken for granted in society largely, but it's still really useful. And that's where a lot of my interest in technology has kind of come from. Uh, most everything is more convenient in my life and being able to speak to that, being able to live it allows me to more easily translate that into the types of work that I do or when I'm, uh, when I'm engaging with a consumer technology product or some sort of offering that a company wants to bring to market, it allows me to draw from personal experience rather than just simply pure, purely through theory, which I think is honestly one of my more competitive edges, not for having the technologies, but for understanding their intrinsic value, how they interact with each other and how they can be applied in daily life. You know, that's a great point. Like I always, as a digital strategist myself, talk about human-centered, human-centric technology, right? You talked a little bit about convenience, you know, like even in entertainment, like you talk about home theater system or audio system being, if you're an audiophile, you'll understand this. Like you enjoy, it's yeah. almost like an art, right? You uh, enjoy setting it up the right way and where you can hear the minutest of things and it's it is phenomenal. Aside from just being engaged with it, it's also just enjoyable to interact with technology if it's set absolutely. up the right way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, what what are some technology products, you know, kind of since you're sort of a tech enthusiast, um, you know, what are some products that uh, you've utilized that you just couldn't live without it? You, you just kind of appreciate the value. It, it just makes your life whole. What, what would you say? Well, one would be Alexa, <laughs> and <laughs> that would be one for sure. There's another one in which I think most people um, in the modern, you know, connected world nowadays can relate to are smartphones. Wow, uh, those things are so useful. I, I'm an Apple enthusiast. Um, I love my iPhone, love my, you know, all these kind of gadgets around me, but it's um it gets it it reminds me every time i use well almost every time i use it i am pretty try to be pretty cognizant of this sort of stuff is how one simple you know metal glass plastic device can and you know can just enamor us like it just yeah. make us think like wow this thing did not mean much anything until the ecosystem that it built within it and with that ecosystem how could you replicate something like that because it keeps me engaged checking it X number, you know, so many times per day, like most of us do. How can you replicate that in other things? Is it something that's baked into a product um, that we're offering or a service that we're promoting or, or platform? Typically, no. Um, typically, like probably, well, I've seen probably 99% of cases, it is not. And if they're trying to create a marketplace, which is one form of an ecosystem, uh, it's usually even in the nascent stages usually just has a lot more room to grow. And I think that's what makes technologies like the iPhone, like the Android, like others, um, so unique because of what Steve Jobs and other types were able to evangelize um, and enable for the broader ecosystem. That's powerful. So those, those principles of creating an ecosystem, offering it to the masses, democratizing access, um, those are what really run through my mind as much as possible within the resources that are available to allocate towards bringing something to market and connecting the makers with markets. You know, that that's great. I mean, it almost technology becomes an extension of you as a human, right? So, which is, uh, which is pretty yes. awesome. Um, yeah. You know, I think speaking, Johnny Ive was famous for uh, saying that <laughs> Apple, the senior previous senior designer of Apple, right. brilliant guy. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, you know, speaking of uh, technology in these times, you know, uh, obviously we are talking during the time of COVID-19. Um, yeah. And I think most, almost all of the U.S. is under lockdown currently. Um, and, Correct, uh, yes. you know, sales and marketing, uh, I mean, marketing ever, efforts are thriving. We're able to operate in this digital world. Uh, you know, what are some strategies that marketers and sales uh, folks can adopt? Uh, you know, being a, growth mar- being a growth marketer yourself, uh, you know, what would be your advice? Well, that's a profound question. And I think to provide <laughs> a profound answer, I wouldn't be able to do it justice um, as of right now. But what I can share is the neat thing about, I would say even beyond marketing, just simply about owning a business, working within a small business, working simply for those businesses who are seeing um, declining market share or declining ARPU, average revenue per user, is it really comes back down to the basics. I'm going to say it. I know a lot of other people say it, but it's the customer experience. But let's bring that back down to earth. What does that actually mean? Right. Because <laughs> we hear it all the time, and most people do not qualify what actually that means. It really comes down to the actual core value proposition of what you offer. Um, take out all the fluff, right? There's going to be other things that are nice to have, but not need. Example, if whatever you're offering, if you were to take that away from whoever bought it tomorrow, let's say they bought food from you tomorrow, um, where would they go instead? If you have a gym and you close that down, right, which many currently have been forced to close that down for health reasons, what would people do? Would they pay you for an online class? If they don't, what truly value are you offering? I mean, if we're being honest, because gyms know, the, the um, widespread gyms know this as well, right? If all their members were to go in at one time, um, they would actually kind of crash the, uh, the gyms because it really not is built for that. It's really built for more passive gym membership. Nothing against themselves, just you know how a lot of people just don't rarely go in all day because they're busy, they have a lot of work, et cetera. But the idea is that is your business model really in this sort of virtuous cycle? Does it really have a core value prop that really can build on top of itself? When you go through each of these life cycle stages, does it really build value on top of itself? So I'd say take out all the fluff when it comes to customer experience. Just focus on the one thing you can master better than anyone else. If it happens to be food and you're in a commoditized industry, does it mean giving an extra smile every time that they come into the pickup? like a genuine, like real smile? Um, does it mean giving them a little extra, uh, you know, gift, for example, every time they order from you? What are these little extra surprises that delight them? It's up to your business to do that, but focus on what you offer first and then give something else that just surprises and delights them like no other. And you'll be fine. It's not complicated. It's just a matter of doing the basics that really keep you top, top of mind. You can stay top of mind if people like to buy from you, They'll be doing well. Most people can't stay top of mind because they do what everyone else does. So it just gets back to the basics. That's the best thing that I can say during a time like this. It forces people to think like that rather than in a boom economy where people are simply, honestly, a lot of people are just thinking about fluff um, that clouds judgment. um, And it's natural. It's nothing against them. It's just simply how boom economies work. And this is why when they stop, why usually you have such a large decline. Um, again, the good thing is just focus on what you are best at, what you love. Focus on your passion. Focus on what you're really capable at doing. 
and then just simply find a niche market that you can really uh, sink your teeth into and really help service better than anyone else in your local geography or anyone online in your in your niche with those types of principles in mind. That's awesome. So, you know, this is actually a good time from what I'm understanding you're saying is a good time to focus and take out all the fluff, trim the fat. Uh, yes. You know, what value are you really providing to your clients and uh, users and, uh, you know, your, the people who you serve, right? Exactly. And you can keep as many people on your team as, you know, you want. I know it's tough, tougher to do that nowadays, but you know, I'm just saying simply focus on what you do best at. However you want to manage that, it's up to you. But do you, do the strengths, make sure people are served, people feel loved, and you can surprise and delight. Connect makers with markets, right? That's the core of it. That's awesome. Uh, well, CJ, um, what are some uh, places that folks who are interested in following you, uh, the, they can reach you. Um, I, I know cjterrell.com. We're going to put it on our show notes. Uh, but uh, where are you most active? Uh, talk to us about that. Sure. So admittedly, I've not been as active on social media recently. Um, but I do have a pretty, uh, I think, pretty useful trove of information on my Instagram channel. I've not been active on there as of currently. I haven't been active on there for a while, but a lot of the information on there is written from my heart, written from my mind, and it's very useful marketing information. And there are dozens of posts which you can go back and reference, which tell you about how to bring something to market. Uh, so I recommend Instagram as a primary channel for that, just based on the previous content that I've created um, out of a lot of conscious efforts to help my audience. And also LinkedIn. I, I mean, you know, I don't necessarily post too much from there, but I keep a pretty up-to-date profile. Um, if anyone sees value in connecting with me, feel free to reach out. But um, tell me why we should connect. Uh, I think you know I, I get a lot of requests. Um, I just want to make sure that we are both on the same understanding that it's really truly a mutual value to do so. And then um, those are the primary primary areas. But if you're looking for more information on how to get started with growth marketing, if you're looking for more information on just simply how to learn about this sphere, the the idea is I'm not trying to teach you how to necessarily become a growth marketer if you're not interested in that concept. The idea is if you want to bring something to market, get more customers and scale up, then I built my website to help facilitate that sort of learning. And uh, David, as you mentioned, right, um, it's cjterrell.com, C-J-T as in Thrive, E-R-R-A-L.com. And you'll find the information from there and other links to my other online profiles from there can be found too. And if you'd like to chat, feel free to reach out and let's connect. Awesome. Um, CJ, one last question. Uh, before we wrap this up, sure uh, you know, I know events are all shut down at the moment. Uh, perhaps when it comes back up, what are some events that you uh, participate in that you like going to? Perhaps if you have a speaking engagement or something, um, you know, in the past, perhaps in the future, what are some events that we could follow you on? Sure thing. So most of the events that I do um, are in based in Silicon Valley. So for some of your audience that may not be, uh, you know, physically accessible to come to there, but, uh, you know, with digital events nowadays, um, it's more accessible than others. I've been involved with a group um, that's basically focusing on involved with uh, meet uh, meetups for startup entrepreneurs and things like that. But I would recommend um, probably connecting with me online is best, uh, just because I've been finding the most value from there, being able to connect instantly with people um, as much as possible and answer their questions, explore their ideas. That's really what interests me the most, I would say. 
and also where I can provide the most value to people. CJ, it's been a pleasure talking with you on this podcast. Uh, I'm sure the listeners got a lot out of this. Uh, we, we're really glad that we had you on the show. Thank you. Well, it was a pleasure to be here and I'm uh, open to engage uh, more down the line. And David, thank you so much. Really, truly appreciate it.